I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as slashers, the boogeyman, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. All right, guys, and we're back. And uh, for us, it's the month of September, which in my household is known as Halloween Eve. But for y'all, <laughs> it's October. <laughs> yeah, and this is that like cool, spooky holiday. What is it? Sunday the 15th? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I'm familiar with Saturday the 14th. What's this 15th business? It's uh, the day that you wake up hungover. <laughs> That's every day ending in Y, sir. Shit. We really hope you guys enjoyed the last two episodes because they were fucking fun to make and they're great movies. So, yep. But before we dive into this one, we wanted to uh, go over a couple of announcements about the show. We have been saying back and forth as we record these for the past almost 30 episodes, we're trying to hit like a time window that we really like. And we really like just talking about the movies and having lots of discussions and worrying more about the quality of the episode than the time length. But sometimes we've been hitting three plus hours in some of these episodes, and that's after I cut two hours out. Yeah, runtime is getting a little long in some spots. We really would like to hit like an hour and a half to two hour and 15 minute mark every episode. And if we have to, if the episode, you know, needs one more movie just crammed in there and we occasionally hit three hours, I'm okay with that. I just don't want three hours to be the normal. Yeah. That's a lot of, like you said, with what's edited out, that's a, that's a lot of time of having to look at each other's faces. Well, and it's, it's not just looking at that sweet, sweet face of yours. (laughs) It's also when I'm having to edit these down to be a manageable amount of time to listen to we have to keep the movie part in there if we like skip a whole act of the movie it's going to sound terrible which means some of the behind the scenes and discussions and theories about things just get fucking cut just so we don't have four hour long episodes and i don't like doing that yeah we don't want to do that to you guys and like like we kind of warned in the very first episodes like we like to talk about the movies we can sit here and just say lines from the movies to each other and we're like yeah you know we're we're okay with reliving that moment if there's too much of that you know that maybe that's not leaving enough room for some more of the fun shit we're trying to get in there. And also I feel like it alienates certain things like certain directors that I'm wanting to cover. And I look and they only have two movies or three movies and they're definitely worth covering on the show. But I'm like, that's only going to be an hour and a half long if we do that. And, and that's, that's actually what brought me to this was trying to plan ahead for our next director episode. When we get to it, I started thinking, I'm like, well, I want to do this director, this director, this director. Well, I'm not going to be able to hit two and a half hours with that. And I'm like, why am I restricting myself to try to hit this long time window? Yeah, we're not going to use that as the benchmark. And uh, we're not going to let content suffer due to that. Yeah, I mean, the the series, like each series will still contain the same amount of content. Like if we were doing this subgenre and we wanted to cover five or six movies, instead of it being like one really long one or or two decently long ones we'll just make it three which we're gonna do with this one (laughs) yeah that's exactly what happened with this one and also i mean i have to edit these things and it takes me a really long time when i have five and a half hours worth of footage to edit down to whatever the fuck manageable amount of time i can get it to so it would help me a lot yeah especially with three kids uh and a deadline yeah (laughs) and also i want to say we are primarily a horror podcast and we are primarily horror fans but as horror fans you also have like exploitation flicks 
and sci-fi movies and stuff like that that just kind of blend in genre movies that we all love. Yeah. Even a little little tip of the toe in the water into fantasy because Josh is going to figure out a way to talk about legend on here. Ooh, and Labyrinth. And Labyrinth. Yeah, so we like these things, and, and we feel like a lot of you guys probably do too, so it would be fun to to bring these in and not just be like, oh, it's only horror, because really, horror fans usually like all of the, the genres for the most part. Yeah, and if we've got stuff with um, a heavy angle of horror within it, or um, you know, horror in unexpected places, we're going to go there too. I mean, we've already, with Wes Craven, we already did some exploitation flicks. Yeah. And when we hit John Carpenter... I mean, he's got more exploitation flicks than he does horror movies because <laughs> we're already covering Halloween on this very episode. Yes, we are. Welcome to the month of October. I'm so happy to finally get to the Halloween franchise because this is kind of like part of what made me get all the idea to do this podcast and start it and ask Josh to help me. And we started with slashers just so I could talk about <laughs> Halloween a little bit. Yeah, because you realize what time of year we were starting. It's like, shit, I got to wait a whole fucking year nearly before we can talk about the franchise. And we are going to talk about the whole franchise, multiple timelines and all, except for the new trilogy. I would, I would like to say, I hope we still have a podcast. By the time Halloween ends comes out and we'll cover all those (laughs) then. But the way this is working out, it looks like we're going to be able to have three episodes for the Halloween franchise and it's going to take us through the entire month of October, which will be fucking awesome. Yep. That worked out nicely. I wanted to do Friday the 13th on uh, Friday the 13th, but it didn't work out because this is, like I said, we're just past that, right? And uh, maybe we'll do that on the next one. Yeah. Well, there's another one coming up not too far from now. I want to briefly talk about the different timelines of the movie. You have Halloween one and two, and then we had three, which was a standalone to possibly spring off an anthology series had nothing to do with these. And then four, we come back to the Michael Myers story. So we have the, the timeline of one, two, four, five, and six. And I always call that like the curse of the thorn timeline. Right. And then after that, when they made Halloween seven, which was called Halloween H2O or 20 years later, that's a separate timeline, and that's one, two, seven, and then eight. Yep. And then you have the new timeline, which is one, and then Halloween 2018. Yeah. Which is then going to be Halloween Kills. I fucking hate that name. And Halloween Ends. I like that name. I'm okay with that name. As long as they actually end it. I don't care if he's my fucking favorite slasher or not. I want closure at some point. <laughs> Which in later movies, they tried they to tried. fucking do that multiple times. Yeah. But I guess we should probably go ahead and get into the uh, movie discussions if we want to avoid this three-hour length episode thing, right? I feel like we got to start with a timeline explanation, okay? Because I know some people know there's multiple timelines. I know some people who watch all the Halloween movies and do not realize there's multiple timelines. And I meet people that only realize there's like two timelines in there and not three. And there's now a fourth one started. Yeah. I'm one of those that didn't, I knew there was some, but I didn't know it was this bad as far as how many timelines there were until prepping for this episode. And and the original Halloween might be my favorite slasher movie and possibly horror movie of all time. But I've said before, like as far as slasher franchises go, this is not my favorite franchise beginning to start. It has some gems in it. It does. And it has some turds in it. It definitely does. But you got to start at the basics with 1978 Halloween, which was co-written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and directed by John Carpenter. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the background crew that John Carpenter uses on this movie to make this movie, he used in like the fog and the thing and Big Trouble in Little China and some of the other Halloween movies that he's done throughout the franchise. 
The movie was the most profitable independent film ever made until the Blair Witch Project came out. That damn Blair Witch Project. It held the record for like 20 something years. Though, so that's pretty badass. Yeah. When it was all said and done, they spent $320,000 to make the movie. And I keep hearing mixed numbers on the millions of dollars it made worldwide. I've heard like 45 and like 78, which are huge differences. They're yeah. somewhere in between. But either way, it made a shit ton of money for, for the amount that was put into it. Mustafa made his money back. Right, right. And it's really an interesting story how it happened because John Carpenter went to USC to film school and learned to direct. And he had done a couple like little sci-fi and uh, like thriller style short films. And he had made Assault on Precinct 13, yep, which was a, a genre flick. It was an exploitation flick. And Erwin Yoblins had seen it, loved the movie, and he had had an idea for babysitters getting killed. And he's like, this guy could make me the movie. And he called John. And John had some stipulations. He wanted his name on the title. Yep. He wanted uh, complete creative control. He wanted to score the movie himself. And... He only got paid $10,000 for those jobs, (laughs) but he wanted 10% of the revenue. Yep. They gave him all that because he said he could make a horror film for $300,000. And Erwin Yablon's like, if you think you can fucking do this for $300,000, I can find you (laughs) $300,000. And he called Mustafa Akkad, like Josh said earlier, and was able to get the funding after Mustafa met John Carpenter and talked to him and heard their ideas. And what's funny is they hadn't even came up with the Halloween idea yet. I used to always hear stories that the movie was originally called The Babysitter Murders. I can't find anything. I found where that that I when when Yoblin said he had the idea that like that was the only time that as a title was ever floated. Right. And and it, I think it was more said as like a basic idea than anything. Yeah. But they hadn't came up with the the Halloween idea yet. And I think Erwin Yablons actually came up with the idea on an airplane, if I remember correctly. And he when he landed, he called John Carpenter. He's like, hey, will you see if there's any movies made with the name Halloween in it? And he's like, no. He's like, let's do it on Halloween night. It's a spooky holiday, and they were just both fucking surprised. It had never been done before. Yeah, they were psyched. They didn't have to pay any licensing to use it. (laughs) (laughs) And it started the, uh, I mean, I I guess I won't say it started the using holidays for horror movies because we had Black Christmas already at this point. Yeah, but this fucking solidified it. Just like the entire slasher subgenre, we already had Jalo films and whodunits that were pretty much slasher. But this really just put the fucking pieces together. But I'm not going to beat that horse with a bat like I did on the first four episodes. (laughs) But the movie was filmed over 21 days in California in the summer. So they didn't have fall leaves. They had to fly them in in bags, pour them out, have fans blowing the leaves around. And then when they cut, you'd have to go sweep up the fucking leaves and cram them in a bag. And I think that's when Malik Akkad, Mustafa's son, he was the production assistant out of school. And I think that was one of his jobs was to bag the fucking leaves up. Yeah, there was a missed opportunity there to have in the credits Leaf Wrangler. <laughs> right. And uh, they had to try not to catch palm trees. When they were recording and uh, they had to import the pumpkins and you'll see a lot through the Halloween franchise. This is a problem where like squash and stuff have to get imported, even watermelons (laughs) and they paint them to look like pumpkins because it's not (laughs) fucking fall. They want the movies to come out on Halloween. So the, the pumpkins aren't in season. Deborah Hill was brought along by John Carpenter because one, it was his girlfriend at the time. Yeah. And two, she worked on, I think it was assault on precinct 13 with them beforehand. Yeah. And she was the co-writer and producer of this movie and uh, script supervisor. That's what she did. She was script supervisor for Assault. Okay. And uh, when they wrote the movie, you know, sh- she had been a teenage girl in high school before, right? Yeah. So she wrote all of the girls' parts. 
Okay. Like the way their characters worked, the way they talked, their conversations, any of those scenes. And John wrote all of the scenes with the shape going around killing people. So we now know that in her youth, Deborah Hill said totally a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think that's a really neat way to do it. If oh, you yeah. Think about it. Yeah. Great perspective to write from. Because you had them each writing two separate parts of, it technically could have been two different movies and you just kind of pieced them together. Nope. Nick Castle was John's friend from USC and John had got this big directing job. Nick hadn't yet because he also wanted to be a director. And he came on set just to hang out with his friend and see how it works. And uh, <laughs> John liked the way he walked around. So he got cast as the shape. Holy shit. Which is funny because he's not like, you know, when I was younger, I used to think he was like a stunt guy and whatnot. And then I found out he directed one of my favorite children's movies of all time the last starfighter yeah. he made that movie he also made like fucking major pain yeah with damon wayne and shit so i mean he's an established director after the fact not these kind of movies but randomly ended up playing the shape by the way i'm gonna say the shape i'm gonna say michael i'm gonna say myers i'm gonna say mikey i'm gonna be all fucking over the place <laughs> when we get to halloween five it's really fucking confusing because there's a mikey in the movie <laughs> shit uh how much do you think nick castle got paid to play the shape was it union or not? No fucking union is John Corbett 77. <laughs> I don't know how much. $25 a day. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, that's worse than they tried to fuck Daniel Harris uh, for Halloween 6. Yes. <laughs> um, that's a terrible story when we get to it too. Not literally, by the way, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try not to hearken on too much of this, but some of this is kind of funny when they were filming some of the scenes, Nick, you know, being in film school and not making a movie yet, new, like basic premise for filmmaking. So he'd say, John, what's my motivation for this scene as the shape? And John would say, your motivation is to fucking walk from this side of the street to the other. <laughs> Nick had to fill it in. Now I did hear like the head tilts and stuff. Like sometimes John would say, Nick, I want you to kind of tilt your head and stare. But then Nick just did it his own way. Yeah. And that's the thing. The head tilts and the walk have never been mimicked properly. No. They've never been done anywhere near as good. And uh, he's not an actor or a stunt guy. He was just a dude. Part of what worked for the mystery of the character. We had a couple other big actors of flex worth mentioning. Jamie Lee Curtis, the Scream Queen. <laughs> this is her first movie. She was a nobody. She wasn't their original choice. They apparently wanted June Lockhart from Lassie's daughter. Yeah. Uh, I think her name was Annie to, to fucking play the role. They couldn't get her for some reason. And Deborah Hill was like, hey, Janet Lee from Psycho, which was a big influence to, to John for this movie. She's trying to, you know, get into acting. Why don't we grab her? And she worked out. It's really funny because she says this was like this movie. She thanks the fans so much because this is responsible for her entire acting career. And she says it was her best and favorite part all the way up until True Lies through her entire acting career. Oh, wow. Those are honestly my most two memorable roles of her as well, though. Yeah. I mean, she's in Fog and fucking Terror Train and, and Prom Night and all that, but you know. Now everybody remembers the friggin' sexy scene from True Love. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't talk about Halloween without bringing up Donald Pleasance. True. Who plays Dr. Sam Loomis, which Sam Loomis is the boyfriend from Psycho. So there's your next throwback. He filmed all of his scenes in like four or five days because he was like the famous guy and he didn't want to do the fucking movie. Like yeah. he heard about it. He came in and then he met John and started seeing the set and his ideas. And he's like, this guy knows what the fuck he's doing. And they had a good working relationship because he's in several other John Carpenter movies after this, as well as this franchise for better or worse sometimes. Yeah. John actually wanted either Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing. I could have seen either one of them. Yeah. Like, they would have been just as good, if not better, than Donald Pleasance. I hate to say it, because I think that was also a Irwin Yablons thing. He's like, hey, how about, you know, the guys from the Hammer films? 
And uh, neither one of them would fucking touch the movie with a 10 foot pole, <laughs> which is funny because they would have both probably been perfect for it. And uh, just a little bit about Carpenter. He based his idea of the shape off of a mental patient he saw when he was in college on tour through like a psychiatric facility. There was a young child just sitting there staring out the fucking window into space with like no soul or anything or emotion <laughs> on his eyes. And that gave him the idea to, to, to write out Michael. So that was kind of neat. His father was a music professor and always made him learn how to play instruments, which is how he ended up scoring this movie and almost every movie he's ever made. And the motherfucker's like 77 and goes on tour with a band, including his sons right now. Yep. Got to see that one day, man. We got to figure out a way to go. And I really think it's funny because you don't see this a lot with horror movies, especially slasher movies. But John Carpenter says Ebert was a big part of this movie getting so big because he reviewed the film and talked about how smart it was and, and how it was done right and how it wasn't gross. And that's the thing. We, we said this in the slasher episode. There's almost no blood in this fucking movie. Yeah. And that was something that was talked up on Siskel and Ebert that, you know, both of them actually liked the movie. And that's what they praised it for was that it was it was a smart film. It was a psychological film. Well, let's do a deep dive into the movie now that we've covered the uh, little backstory here. We have the opening credits with the greatest fucking horror theme music of all time, in my opinion. It just sticks in your head. You get a jack-o'-lantern lit in the background, and this is, uh, I carve my pumpkin. One of our pumpkins every year I carve just like this one with like the dagger <laughs> nose and stuff. And it's the black background and orange text, and you just, you know it's Halloween, right? Like, it really gets the mood going. I mean, when I was a kid, that's that's how you knew Halloween was coming, when you'd see the opening credits to one of these movies on TV, and you're like, yeah. yes, yes, the leaves are about to fall, it's that time. And it's and it's not just that, it's the entire opening credits, there's this very slow zoom in happening that first you don't realize it's happening, and by the time you realize it's happening, it's already set up tension subconsciously. And it's because John Carpenter, not only is he a master of horror, but he was a, he's a master of framing. <laughs> I wholeheartedly mean that yeah. his framing techniques on his fucking movies are just awesome. And the way he works with his DPs to get the camera angles, they just really put they, you in the movie. Yep. They sell it. And I do want to say they did a really good job in Halloween 2018 doing like a throwback to these credits. Yeah. Cause like all of the Halloween movies for the most part, try to do these credits and it's very shitty done. It and, feels disingenuous. Right, right. Right. Where it didn't on the remake, like the, the, pumpkin slowly decaying and shit and all that. It was really fucking cool. <laughs> but then we open up in Haddonfield, Illinois, which was named after Haddonfield, New Jersey, where Deborah Hill is from. Yep. Because she's from a small town. She wanted to have a small town vibe, so she just stole her uh, town's <laughs> name. Why not? It's Halloween night, 1963, at 45 Lampkin Lane, and we get this really nice POV. We call it a throwback slasher thing, but really, I mean... Yes, it was in a couple of proto slashers before this, but this was like the first slasher movie to get it down. But we have the whole panel glide camera thing going through the killer's point of view, goes through the yard to the house, and it's spying on a young couple as they make out on the couch and they head upstairs to do their thing. We hear this eerie synth music playing the entire fucking time. We see the lights switching out and then the camera cuts around to the other side of the house. And it's always interesting to hear any of the crew talk about doing this scene because they liked the lighting in the movie Chinatown and they figured out what it was. They used blue lighting. Okay. So John's like, I want to use blue lighting in this movie. And they had all the lights set up for the side of the house where they were making out and go upstairs. And then as soon as the panda glide cuts, everybody had to turn the lights around to face the other way in the house really quick. And he's like, it, it's fucking loud. You know, like obviously they weren't recording the audio then. Yeah. But all hands on deck to keep moving the lights for that fucking crawl. I mean, he says this entire scene because it used to be rumored it's one take. There's one cut. He used to say, find the cut like it was a game. 
I know where the cut is now. It takes the mystery out of it. But he said it was a caravan walking through the house, like a whole team of people yep. going behind him and holding the lights. But we see the POV continue into the house, into the kitchen, where a small hand in a clown sleeve grabs a kitchen knife out of the drawer, which was Deborah Hill did that scene. So she's walking alongside the cameraman. and have to reach around and grab that if you can picture that in your head. <laughs> We see the POV go upstairs, which I understand was very difficult to do. And honestly, John, I think, had spent half the budget on the fucking Panaglide and the cameras for this movie. Well, that was the thing, because the only way they were going to do it with the amount of money and the shooting window that they had was the, the steady cam wasn't even a thing yet. The, the Panaglide was a I think we talked about this in the earlier episode was the first iteration of a steady cam. It's like, fuck it. We'll just grab the steady cam. That way we can just walk around with it. We don't got to set up tracking shots. We got don't have to set up dollies, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And it's because he had a vision in his head. Yeah. So like half. But yeah, half the the three hundred thousand dollar budget, which ended up being it's either three hundred and twenty or three hundred and thirty. Whatever that addition was, that was just to get Donald Pleasance. I yeah. didn't say that earlier. It was a pay for his trailer. <laughs> the, the trailer's a different movie. I know. But after the hand grabs a kitchen knife, we see the boyfriend coming downstairs. He was up there pretty quick, by the way. <laughs> and then he's like, uh, I got to go. <laughs> he just runs up the stairs. It's the walk of shame for some reason. That was the crying game. <laughs> but the BOV goes up the stairs, and we see the Deborah Hill's hand and the little clown sleeve reach down grab a a clown mask and put it on the fucking camera lens which is badass and if you ever see that in a movie again like it's like it would just be a knockoff like yeah. it was just you know what i mean and a lot of people think they attach the mask some way to the to the camera to do the effect where you could see the eyes because that's the coolest part of it but that was actually done in post yep and that's the cut yep when it fades to black that was the one cut in that scene but the the masked pov goes into the room where we see the girl or she's humming or singing but she's naked brushing her hair and we hear her say michael <laughs> and and the knife comes down and just violently stabs the girl to death and it really is it, it always seems gruesome and violent but the camera's looking at the hand coming down while you hear the the synth playing in the background and you don't actually see the stabbing happening and i feel like it's so much worse that way than seeing it yeah it's very much like psycho the POV then runs downstairs and out the front door, and then the camera angle kind of cuts around, and we see some parents running up the yard, and they're like, Michael, and we see that it's like a six-year-old boy in the front yard in a clown costume with a fucking bloody knife. You do not want to babysit this fucking kid. <laughs> this is the first movie I remember seeing like a kid as a murderer in some way in a film. Yeah. Like, I don't remember a movie before this, but this was made by John Carpenter, who made Assault on Precinct 13, where he actually kills a kid in the movie. So, mm -hmm. no fucks given. <laughs> we get another title card. It says Smith's Grove, Illinois, October 30th, 1978. So, we've now time lapsed 15 years, and we see it's a rainy night, and we're introduced to Donald Pleasant's character, Dr. Loomis. Hey, is any relation to Billy Loomis, I wonder? <laughs> And, and a nurse that's chain-smoking as they drive to the maximum security hospital to pick up a patient who hasn't spoken in 15 years. She's asking, like, what should we do when we see the patient and pick him up and take him before the judge? And he's talking about how many, like, CCs of Thorazine to give him. And she's like, Jesus Christ. And he's like, you know, this person's not a human being. <laughs> Stuff like that. So Dr. Loomis is not a fan. But as they pull up, they notice that all the patients are out loose in the yard and they're like hospital gowns. And uh, the nurse is like, why are they letting them out like this? And Dr. Lewis is like, God damn it, they're not supposed to be out. And he leaves her in the car to go check it out. 
I don't know why. <laughs> why would you leave her alone? And why would you go out there with all those people? I guess you don't have a cell phone, right? You can't just like call hey, security. There you go. And uh, we see one of the patients in the gown run up and jump on top of the car. The only time you see Nick Castle in the movie without a mask on, that was actually him, not a stunt man. They didn't have money for that shit. <laughs> and um, he's scaring her on the car and she's leaning around the window. And it's really cool when you see the hand come up behind her and smash the window and reach in for her. But after you catch it, you can't unsee what you see. And that's this giant like crescent wrench duct taped to his hand. Have you ever noticed it before? Uh-uh. Dude, just watch it. Once you see it, you will never not see it again because the hand comes and like gets ready to smack the glass and you can see the crescent wrench on it. It pulls back and he's fucking, that's how they break the window. Okay. I'm assuming it was real glass maybe, or even if it was fake glass, you'd still have to have something hard to shatter it. Yeah. Probably real glass if they use a crescent wrench. And uh, this patient, as we'll call him for now, removes the nurse from the car, steals it and drives away. He's gone from here. The evil is gone. Now the smoky nurse, that's Marion, right? Yes. So like Marion Crane, you already got right, another right, right. throwback there. There's quite a few of those. Oh, yeah. We get another title card. It says Haddonfield, Halloween. And we see Lori Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, leaving her house. And her father's the owner of Strode Realty. And he asked her to leave a key under the mat at the old Myers place. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Which I just want to say right here. Obviously, she wasn't meant to be the sister when they made this movie. Yeah. But John Carpenter did do the second one. He did. And why would he send his daughter to the house where her brother murdered? I don't know. I mean, I guess nothing horrific's happened, which she doesn't know won't hurt her, right? True. But anyway, she's walking to the Strode house. I'll draw you a map if I need to, but the locations... (laughs) Of some of these houses is not going to make sense as we go through this movie. Oh, is it like like trying to go through the the Shining, going through the? No, no, I think it just fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> but she bumps into Tommy Doyle, who she babysits, uh, and and they decide to start walking to school together. Tommy gets freaked the fuck out when they walk up to the Myers house. It's the Myers house. That's the boogeyman's house. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's all the neighborhood stories about it. And they wanted that. They wanted that small town. This is the haunted house vibe to it yeah because that shit feels real but uh you know Lori's letting him know that there's no such thing as the boogeyman and she's walking up to the the fucking door and you can hear the <sighs> like you can just hear the heavy breathing of mikey in the background and you can't see him and uh she leaves the key under the mat and turns on and walks off and to me this is like the first jump scare sting in history <laughs> and he steps in a frame and it's fucking awesome and it's a genuine jump scare. It's not like a cat jumping through a window with a sting, you know? Yeah. And I have so many, like, fond memories of this. It's rare for me to get to see this movie with somebody who hasn't seen it. And AJ that works with me, he came over one night or one day, and I was like, you got to watch the movie. I found it he'd never seen it, and this is just, like, two years ago. Okay. And he's watching the movie with me sitting on the couch, and I have all the lights out. And when we get to the scene, I try to slowly cut my head over so I can watch him without him noticing. <laughs> yeah. And I've never seen anybody jump so hard. And he's not a horror movie guy, right? So he jumps for every like I know, gotcha. legitimate jump scare. But this one like fucking got him. <laughs> and I thought it was awesome. And uh, did you go see the original one re-released in theaters with me last year? I did not. Oh, you got to go this year. It's so fun to do it. <laughs> but like, it, it's fun because a lot of the time people are laughing at the movie because the dialogue and stuff's kind of dated. But it's like a fun laughing at it, not making fun of it. Yeah. That part every time, man, you just hear, oh! <laughs> As everybody screams, it's a good jump scare. 
Tommy and Lori go their separate ways. I assume so that he can go to like the middle school and she can go to the high school. Yeah. And she starts walking down the sidewalk and Mikey creepily just steps in a frame behind Lori as she's singing what he's thinking. I wish I had you all alone. Just the two of us. But I just want you to keep in mind, this is going to come up later. This scene would mean that Tommy and Lori live near each other, right? Yeah. If they bumped into each other on the way to school yeah. and walk together. And the Myers house is in walking range also. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just keep that in mind. With <laughs> we cut to Smith's Grove sanitarium and Loomis is arguing with the head of the asylum and the, the asylum's like not want to take blame for this. Right. But neither is Loomis. He's like, I fucking told you this guy's crazy. <laughs> I warned you. We got to call Haddonfield. We got to say he's on the way. His boss thinks he's like reaching for it. He's like, this guy's fucking just escaped just hiding somewhere. He's not going to Haddonfield to kill anybody. Yeah. And he's like, besides, he couldn't drive a car. It's like, he's doing a pretty good job of it last night. And uh, what's he say? Perhaps somebody around here taught him. Yeah. They really play on that in one of the timelines that we're going to get to. Yeah, they do. That's just some exposition to be like, get over this. He could drive. <laughs> if you watch the movie on television, it was too short to, yeah. to fill a window. Plus, they had to edit it a little bit. So John had to go back and shoot extra scenes. And one of them is you see Dr. Loomis in a room arguing with a bunch of doctors okay. over the state of Michael. And it leads into this walkout scene here. It's really not an important scene, but anybody who's only ever seen this movie on like TV, you're going to see scenes that weren't very good. And it's because they're shut after the fact. Okay. But we go to Haddonfield high school and Lori's in class and she's listening to a lecture as she sees someone in her peripheral staring at her from outside through the window. She looks out and you see the shape, full costume and mask, standing there behind the Smith's Grove car. And the teacher starts asking her a question. And she looks back at the teacher and, you know, even though she was spaced out, she gives us like big, long answers so that, you know, she's like a smart character, right? Yeah. And she looks back out and the shape's gone. And I really love uh, Leslie Vernon. I love that fucking movie. Yeah. And, and you always talking about like, oh, oh, we can sense each other. Like the final <laughs> girl in the slasher. And I always, you know, I feel like it's from that. You come back to that scene. We cut to, I don't know if it's the same school or a different one, but Tommy's being picked on by, I always think it's Lonnie because, you know, Lonnie comes up later. Lonnie, get your ass away from there. But uh, it's, a, it's a kid named Richie and his little group of bullies. And they're telling him the boogeyman's going to get him. They push him over and they destroy his fucking rocking pumpkin that he's carrying. I wish I could find one that big. <laughs> and the kids run off and one of them runs straight into fucking Mikey. And, and you get the sting again. And I love how his head's out of frame. Like it's just like from the shoulders yeah. down. And the kid's face is like, oh my God, what's happening? And uh, Tommy starts walking through the yard. And it's a very, I mean, this is one of the perfect situations in Nick Castle's walk. Just the walk as he stalks this kid through the fence, through the yard to the street going home. Yeah. And I know I talk about Dead by Daylight all the time on this, <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah, I love the do. game and I used to stream it, but his power is stalking, which I always felt was kind of neat. But when you watch the first movie, you can see where they get the idea for the, like he stalks his prey. Cause he does that quite a few times, like between Tommy and Annie, where he just follows you creepily walking. Nobody ever got that down. Right, man. Building tension. We cut to the highway and uh, we see Dr. Loomis is using a payphone. And for those of you that are too young, it was Doctor Who's TARDIS, <laughs> okay? But it wasn't bigger on the inside, and you actually put money in a phone and called people. I love how we always explain payphones when they come up. <laughs> and VCRs. Uh, <laughs> dude, I haven't seen a payphone or fucking ever. It's, uh, uh, 
There's people our age that might know what the fuck a payphone is. <laughs> but Dr. Loomis is calling the sheriff, trying to tell him what's going on, what's happening, that Michael Myers might be coming to the town. The sheriff won't have anything to do with it. He thinks it's just fucking crazy. And as he gets off the phone, he sees a old truck parked in the bushes with a bunch of white sheets blowing around it. And he walks up and it looks eerily like the patient's gowns, right? And he looks at it and he looks on the ground and he sees a pack of matches on the ground, which he noticed earlier in a foreshadowing scene that was the matches the nurse used. Ah. Lighter smokes, Nurse Marion. The camera pans, you know, over a little bit out of Dr. Loomis's view and we see a dead body laying in the bushes that he never discovers. No. Which that guy's never put into the body count of this movie. Like in the <laughs> sequels, they're like, oh, he killed blah, blah, blah on the day. Poor guy, never got accounted for. Yeah. But honestly, this is like one of the most carpenter scenes to me in the movie. The way you get the dun, 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 you know, like the slow music as yeah. he's walking and finding it and the camera panning out and then like the framing pulling in the body. I don't know. It's just, I love that part of him. I can't wait to cover this motherfucker. We go back to Haddonfield High and we see Laurie and Linda leaving school. And Linda is PJ Souls, which rock and roll high school. As Vix is a bit of fuck ton of shit. Fuck ton of shit. But she's a genre actress through and through. We can see that Lori's like the brainiac and Linda's like your stereotypical ditzy cheerleader type, right? But their friend Annie runs up behind him late to the party. And she's played by, at the time, Nancy Loomis, which at first I thought maybe that's where the Loomis name came from. I, I think it was coincidence. She's now Nancy Keys, but she was actually dating Tommy Lee Wallace, who was like, set supervisor and a couple other things on this movie yeah. and close rela- working relationship with John and it's going to pop up later in the franchise but they were dating at the time okay and we find out that her boyfriend Paul got caught egging and soaping and is grounded so she can't fucking have Halloween plans with him like she was thinking and Lori thought she was babysitting that night anyways and <laughs> Linda says that she only babysits so that she has a place to and Lori interrupts her by saying shit I have a place for that and interestingly enough, Jamie Lee Curtis thought it was weird when she got cast for Lori because she said that in real life, she was basically Linda and Annie put together. Yeah. And then she had to play the quiet mousy girl, which if that's true, then she fucking knocked out the park. Yeah. But we find out that Lori's forgotten some of her books and they tease her for it and she's wanting to go back and get them. While they're digging through their bag, trying to see if she forgot her books or not, we see the Smith's Grove car come speeding by and Annie yells, speed kills. And the car locks up the brakes. We now have the real reason for the babysitter murders, right? He didn't like her yelling at him. He's got to find these girls. He's got to kill them. We find out that Annie's babysitting Lindsay Wallace, who lives across the street from Tommy Doyle. Tommy Lee Wallace. Just want to throw it out there. Yeah, I think that I'm pretty sure it's where all these fucking names came from. And Lori's going to be babysitting Tommy. So they'll be across the street and they can hang out. And Annie picks on her. She's like, great. I can watch a kid and listen to you do this. Yep. Lori and Annie walk Linda off to her house and drop her off, and they keep walking. And Lori sees the shape peeking out from behind some hedges. Annie is completely oblivious to this until Lori brings it up. And by the time Annie looks up, the shape's gone. He stepped back into the hedges, and, and she thinks it's the creep from the car, right? Yeah. So she runs over there and yells at him around the corner. And then she's like, Lori, somebody wants to talk to you. <laughs> and she's just fucking with her because there's nobody there. And it's a really cool misdirection scene because you think somebody's there the way she's acting. And yeah. Then, and then there's no one. And honestly, I think this is the the lead in to why Lori is the final girl because people used to always pull the, oh, she's the final girl because she was the virgin. She was the one not having sex. She was the pure one. And that's what like the horror genre turned into. But yeah. The way it was made, she's the only one that's aware. 
Yeah. Like the other girl, I mean, I've heard John say this too. This isn't just Jesse theory. The other girls, yes, they had boyfriends and were having sex, but that was distracting them. Like because Lori was like the brainiac, the smart one, the reserved one, the quiet one, she's just looking around more. Like Annie's just like bullshit about what she's doing tonight, looking at her bag. Well, there's a serial killer following them and, and Lori <laughs> just sees them there. And, and I feel like that's the more important thing to take from it than she was the virgin. Yeah, I can see that. Lori drops Annie off at her house and she starts walking backwards and then she accidentally bumps into the sheriff. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? And it's another pretty good random jump scare with the stings and somebody coming in a frame. We cut to the Strode residence and Lori goes in, goes upstairs to her room. I always think like Sydney going home in the first scream. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes. I really feel like Wes Craven was trying to like embody the scene there. Yeah, kind of. And uh, she looks out her window and she sees the shape staring at her from behind a clothesline with some clothes on it. And then he's gone. Her phone rings. It startles her. She answers it and she just hears heavy breathing and no talking, which we kind of at this point are associating with Mikey, right? Yeah. And she hangs at the phone and it rings again. And it's Annie chewing on something. She's like, hey, why'd you hang up on me? Somewhere in here, there's another TV scene where like the girls are hanging out and taking showers and they got towels in their hair and they're like okay. talking, but it was just them like hanging out, making plans for the night. And that was another one that was like really at when you see it on like PBS or something on, on Hallow's Eve when they're playing the movies, you're like, this scene sucks and it's out of place. <laughs> that was one of those. We got to, we got to add two more minutes to those movie scenes. Gotcha. But Lori lays down, takes a nap. And then wakes up. And that's pretty much the same thing that happens to Sydney and Scream because she takes a nap and she's waiting on Tatum to come and pick her up. Yep. But Annie gets her and they head off. And then we cut to a quick cemetery scene. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The gravekeepers walk with Dr. Loomis. And every time he starts talking, is all I can hear is, I've lost my marbles because it's the guy from Hook. <laughs> it's the old guy from the beginning of Hook that lost his marbles. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, he's in a bunch of shit, man. Uh, I feel bad. I can't think of his name right now. But uh, Lewis, the graveyard keeper, are going back to check on Judith Meyer's grave, which is Michael's sister that he killed in 1963. And he's just talking and talking. And, and Dr. Loomis, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, just, just so you can tell how serious he is and he doesn't want to talk. Yeah. And we see that one of the tombstones is missing. And he blames it on those damn kids. It's always fucking kids. We cut to the road. And Lori and Annie are driving a smoking pot and listening to Don't Fear the Reaper. And uh, Mikey's tailing them the whole time, if you pay attention. You can see the Smith's Grove station wagon the entire time behind him. No shit. They pull up to a crime scene where there's an alarm going off and we see Sheriff Brackett there and we find out it's Annie's dad. He says that someone broke in the store and they stole a mask, some rope and a couple of knives. And uh, he says it must be kids. Those damn kids. Really? You know, I would have been more concerned with that if I was a sheriff from like they stole a knife and mask and rope. It's like, oh, they're going to go tie somebody up and fucking murder him. Right. Yeah, He's not very good at detecting. I know. Or I guess it's the seventies. We didn't have as much shit going on then, but I do want to point out. The alarm's currently going off. Yeah. Right? Because there's the whole thing where he's yelling at the girls to talk over the alarm and it shuts off. And then Annie's like, yeah, he yells a lot too, right? <laughs> so did he just steal the mask, the knives and the rope? Had to have. He had the mask on earlier when he was stalking the kids at the school. Hey. Hey. John Carpenter is not perfect. <laughs> I blame the editor. <laughs> But as the girls drive off, Dr. Loomis walks up looking for Sheriff Brackett. And as he turns around, Michael Myers drives right past him following the girls. So, like, he's okay. looking for Michael in the Smith's Grove car <laughs> who's three feet fucking behind him the whole time. He's not very alert. He's bad at detecting. <laughs> Shit. This whole time, you can see the girls being tailed by Michael in the car. Like, so they did a good job of keeping him behind her in every scene. But we find out they're driving to where they're babysitting, okay? And it was right after school and the sun was up, right, when, when all this happened. While they're driving in the houses, we find out that 
Lori has a crush on a boy named Ben Tramer. He's going to pop up again later too. Um, but uh, the thing I want to point out is they had to drive all the way across town and it's now nighttime. Yeah. It's completely dark to go to Tommy and Lindsay's house. I'm just saying. So like they had to drive across town. They got to live by school because she walked to school. Yeah. So the, the map doesn't work out. But we see Annie after she's dropped off Lori and she's walking into the Wallace house and the shape is stalking her the whole time walking behind trees and nobody sees them. And even if they did, it's Halloween night and it's got a mask. Right. Yeah. And we see the Wallace parents leaving, you know, and Annie goes in the house. Well, we cut to the Myers residence and Sheriff Brackett and Loomis show up at the house and it's empty. But we see there's a dead dog in there and that it looks like someone's been eating it and the body's still warm. This comes up in almost every fucking movie. Myers lives off of fucking animals. Okay. He got hungry. And uh, yeah. Sheriff says a man couldn't have done this, but Loomis lets him know that this is no man. I love all of his lines. And I'm not even going to try to say him because like only Donald Pleasance could deliver him. Yeah, he's so dramatic. And it's funny in an interview with him, he was saying that like, I read some of these lines that John wrote and they're so bad, <laughs> so dramatic, but I delivered them the way he wanted them. And it's like, it works, you know? Yeah. Like he knew there, he's a, he was a famous like theatrical actor and British actor. And it was really funny to him, I guess. But we get another jump scare here um, as like a drain pipe or something busted the window. I don't know why and scares the shit out of him. And, and we see that Loomis is armed and has the quick draw as he pulls a gun out. I do have a permit. The sheriff asks him why he's so afraid and he tells him about this patient who was six at the time and had emotionless eyes. The blackest eyes. That kid's pure dag nasty evil. <laughs> he said that he could not reach the boy and that the boy was simply evil. And he spent the next several years trying to keep the boy locked up. The sheriff leaves Loomis to go back and, you know, do his fucking job. And Loomis <laughs> tells him to keep this quiet. Don't tell the news. Don't tell the police. They'll see him on every street corner. They'll see him, you know, at every house. And Loomis says he's going to stay and guard the house. We cut back to the Doyle residence and uh, where Tommy lives. And Lori's reading a book to him and he's bored of it. He wants to show her his comic collection that's hidden under the couch. Tarantula man and nuclear man and all this absurd shit. <laughs> and uh, while he's going over his weird comics and she's picking on him, he's like, what's the boogie, man? You know, and, and like, <laughs> I, I think that's supposed to be like foreshadowing so that Lori thinks he's got the active imagination. Yeah. He's asking about the boogeyman. He reads these fucked up comic books, but Annie calls and she's chatting with Lori spills butter on her clothes. She thinks she's going to get eaten by the family dog named Lester. And uh, she puts him out back, right? Well, he's barking because Mikey's back there and Mikey straight up fucking strangles the dog in the air. It's a German shepherd. I guess you're supposed to assume that it lunged at him. Maybe. Yeah. Cause he's just standing there holding it by the throat. I don't know how they filmed that scene because that dog looks real as fuck as he just kind of goes limp. I'm not one of these kind of people, but they better not have killed the dog. <laughs> I know, right? And I'm uh, sure they didn't, but still. Maybe he was fucking hungry again. <laughs> Big dog got to eat. <laughs> Shit. Win Chun Lee. Foreshadowing. <laughs> but Tommy looks out the window during all this and he sees the shape staring at the Doyle house from across the street at the Wallace house. So I guess he's not out back killing the dog anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Um, he teleports. He okay. This is what I have decided. <laughs> he teleports. He has. Fuck it. I'm going to say it now. The power of the Shatner mask allows him to be beamed anywhere he needs to by Scotty. Okay. <laughs> if I ever start working on a horror movie, I'm taking back my offer for you to help me write it. <laughs> Okay, because the shit ain't cutting it. You get what you pay for, sir. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. 
I used to have a theory when I was younger that he's like an asthmatic and he would take off running when he weren't looking and hop fences. <laughs> and then he like stands like, that's why he's like, hey, that's why he's breathing so hard. He's always fucking hopping fences and running. I guess yours is more rational. <laughs> but uh, he tells Lori that he saw the boogeyman and she doesn't believe him. She thinks it's imagination and she's like, just stop fucking talking about the boogeyman. Okay, kid. <laughs> We also find out, though, at this point that Annie has set Lori up on a date with Ben Tramer, and she's super fucking embarrassed about it and wants her to cancel it. Yep. But after they get off the phone, we see that Lori and Tommy are watching TV, and they're watching The Thing. Yeah, the OG one. And uh, it was one of John Carpenter's favorite movies, which his plan was to remake that someday with that 10% he made off this movie, that fat, fat check he got. <laughs> and if you think about it, that is the way to do it. Like, if you have a hard time getting a movie made and you're trying to talk the studio into money, say, like, I'll take minimum pay, but I want a percentage. Oh, yeah. And then it's all on you to make the fucking movie. And if it makes bank, you made way more than they would have paid you even if you are a famous director. Yep. That's how John started his empire, right? Yep. Tommy's worried about the boogeyman again, and Lori's basically telling him that he doesn't have to be afraid of the boogeyman because she's always going to be there to protect him. Okay foreshadowing yeah back at the wallace residence annie goes out to the laundry room which is out back to get the butter out of her clothes and she gets locked inside this dark room that the lock makes no sense to me but while she's in here in the dark trying to i don't know why you would try to get a stain out in the dark anyways but mikey's stalking her through the window and there's this weird door open and closing i think that's another leslie vernon like with the break in the string <laughs> you know what i mean but while she's out there her boyfriend paul calls the house and Lindsay answers and she goes out back to, to get Annie and making fun of her because she's locked herself in. She's like stuck in the window trying to crawl out and shit. And Annie's like, don't say a word of this to Paul. When Lindsay runs in to grab the phone, she's like, here's Annie. She was stuck in the laundry room. And uh, we find out that Paul figured out a way to sneak out of the house and he wants to hook up. Yeah, he does. Horny teenagers. Back across the street, though, we see Annie bring Lindsay over and she tells Lori that she will cancel the date with Ben if Lori will watch Lindsay for her, right? <laughs> blackmail <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> annie walks to the car and she realizes that she doesn't have her keys and that the car door is locked no keys she heads back in the house finds her keys walks back outside still singing her little jingle and opens the door without thinking about how she didn't unlock it sets in and the windows are completely fogged up and she starts trying to rub the fog off and then she looks at this can at the camera with this derpy look on her face like oh as mikey comes from behind out of the back seat and he strangles her to death. Yep. It's an interesting approach, by the way, having your hands on the back of the neck as you squeeze. Yeah, that's a little, I got some physiology problems with that, but whatever. He's the shape, okay? <laughs> Don't fuck with the shape. It's pure dag nasty evil. We cut back over and Tommy's trying to scare Lindsay from behind a curtain and then he sees the shape carrying Annie's body. Why? I don't fucking know because of where the car was parked. There's lots of problems with locations in this movie. That's about it. That's where he fucked up a good bit. They're good, creepy scenes, but like, just don't show us where the car was parked earlier. Then. Yeah. But he screams when he sees this, you know, man carrying Annie's body or a woman's body. And when he screams, he scares Lindsay and she's screaming and Lori runs in and he's like, it's the boogeyman. It's the boogeyman. And Lori's <laughs> pissed because now he's scared the little girl that she's having to watch. Yeah. Too. Now I got to put up with both you brats thinking this. Right, right. They don't pay her enough for this shit, man. <laughs> and uh, we cut back to the Myers house and we see some kids trying to sneak up and <laughs> Loomis wants to scare the kids away from the house. Hey, Lonnie, get your ass away from there. Loomis is real proud of himself and he has this fucking smirk on his face like yeah. he just saved these kids lives. And the sheriff sneaks up behind him, scares the shit out of him. I think he goes for his gun again. 
And uh, Sheriff Braggett basically says, I ain't heard shit all night, and I'm sick of your fancy words. And uh, Loomis lets him know that death is coming to his town. You know, another one of those dramatic lines. He's like, uh-huh, more fancy words. <laughs> I fucking love that part. And at this point, like, we're quickly going to the last act of the movie, and it's yeah. going to bounce locations a lot. But we see, you know, this fucking awesome-looking stoner van drunk park in front of Lindsay Wallace's house. <laughs> And they open the door and it's Linda and Bob and there's fucking beer cans just like pouring out everywhere. They go in the house and it's completely dark and they start making out on the couch and you can hear like the, as Mikey's like pervy watching them through the house, right? Like he didn't kill him then. He's like, fuck it. I'm going to watch. He's over there. (laughs) (laughs) It could be, could be. But at this point, the phone rings, and everybody's so comfortable answering fucking phones in these houses. It doesn't make any sense. But Linda answers the phone, and it's Lori calling looking for Annie, because I guess she was just expecting Annie to go pick up Paul and then come pick Lindsay up and then go back home, which, you know, it seems like they just leave the kid over there while they did their thing. Anyways, (laughs) they find out the house is going to be empty, and Linda and Bob go upstairs to bang. They do the deed upstairs. Mikey watches a bit again, and then Linda sends Bob to go get her a beer from downstairs. We get a we get the famous line. I'll be right back. Funny story though, PJ Souls was married to Dennis Quaid this time. Okay, and Dennis Quaid was going to be Bob. Oh, but he had some other you know acting obligation and he couldn't do it. So we got this guy. I'm sorry, I don't know your name, Bob. Uh, but it's just <laughs> interesting. It could have been Dennis Quaid. Huh? Did not know that. They're not still married. I, I don't know when they got divorced. They were married at the time. But this is the famous scene where Mikey busts out of the closet and impales Bob to the refrigerator with a three foot long fucking kitchen knife. It's like a Sephiroth katana blade from Final <laughs> Fantasy VII, but it's a Ginsu. Oh. Mikey does that iconic head tilt as he looks at the body, you know, admiring his work that only Nick Castle could do that well. Yeah. And this is also the scene from Scream. Oh, why is there so much blood? There's no blood in the scene. I know, right? It's too red. (laughs) But Mikey heads upstairs, and he's wearing a sheet like a ghost with Bob's glasses on, just letting you know that the shape has a sense of humor, okay? Yeah. Linda thinks it's Bob, and she gets up, and we get, you know, her famous obligatory boob shot, right? See anything you like? (laughs) What's the matter? Can I get your ghost, Bob? But uh, Linda gets sick of Pseudo-Bob shit, and she decides to call Lori. And as she's calling, Mikey comes up behind her and just fucking strangles her to death with the phone cord. He can use any weapon we've seen now, <laughs> right? Like, he's a master of killing. But this is the point where we, we go into the, the quick-moving finale. Dun-dun-dun. Lori thinks something's up. She checks on the kids, makes sure they're in bed, which I don't know. If I was Lindsay's parents and I came home and found out that like my daughter that was supposed to be getting babysat at my house when the babysitter was like sleeping on the boy across the street's bed. (sighs) Yeah, that'd be weird. (laughs) Anyway, I mean, I guess they're young enough now that it would probably be innocent, but you know, still it's just kind of weird. Like where the fuck's Annie? You know, exactly. But I mean, Lori's just trying to take care of the kids first and foremost, right? Cause she's a thinker. She's also about to be in a real uncomfortable situation if there was not a serial killer involved here. When these parents got him, they're going to be fucking pissed. But after she checks on the kids, she prepares to head across the street. Meanwhile, we see that Loomis is getting bored at the Myers house, and he goes walking down the street only to find the stolen car that he somehow never fucking noticed the whole time he was standing in the bushes. Because distance-wise, he shouldn't be that far from where all this is going down. Yeah. 
and he walks for a while. <laughs> so I'll just stop bitching about locations here. If I ever meet John Carpenter, I'm going to ask him about this part, like the location of the neighborhood. But now he knows Michael's in the area and he goes looking for him. We get Lori's slow walk across the street and the eerie music here just fucking really sets the tone. It's the primary Halloween theme, but it's like the bass notes, you know, for the yeah. most part going and the dun, 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 like it's that whole thing going. I don't know. It's fucking, it's one of my favorite walk scenes in a horror movie, but she enters the dark house and she starts looking for her friends and she hears something upstairs and does the horror movie thing, goes to investigate by herself in the dark. <laughs> she finds Annie dead on the bed with Judas tombstone at the head of the bed. And she finds Linda stuffed oddly into a closet for some reason. Yep. And, uh, somewhere in here, she steps back and Bob drops down from the ceiling. Like he was like up in the attic thing. Right. And he's hanging upside down dead. She's freaking out and she backs into a dark hallway up against a wall next to a dark door frame. And I fucking love this shot. Like it's darkness. And then you see a little bit of his face and then the mask just fully comes in a frame before he comes out. And they apparently did it with a light on him with a dimmer. They just did, you know, bright okay. light to like there was, he didn't move. He just stood there in the light and made his mask come out more. Yeah, that was done. Great. What was not done great here. This scene always bothers me. He steps out and he attempts to stab her in the back and somehow he just fucking randomly grazes her arm with the kitchen knife. He's been like this master fucking murderer the whole time. And he's like, Ugh. yeah, and he's and got he the misses. drop on her and misses. Uh, but she falls down this like over the, the banister and falls under the stairs and falls down him. And this is my favorite slasher chasing. Like her going across the street and the dun dunna and he's walking so fucking slow and she's running and then she goes to the neighbors yeah and the neighbors think it's a fucking prank and won't let her in and then she you know makes it down the street doesn't have the keys i don't know what happened to him because you see her put them in her pocket before she goes like oh, she made okay. a big deal to find the keys and put huh. them in her pocket so she's lost them somewhere maybe when she fell over the stairs i don't know yeah, maybe. but she's trying to you know wake up the kids throwing a pot upstairs so the kids will let her in Tommy comes down with Lindsay and lets her in. He's half asleep and doesn't know what the fuck's going on. And she's like, it's a fucking boogeyman, you know? <laughs> they lock the door and she makes him go upstairs to hide. And she locks the door. She tries to use the phone. The phone line's cut. So he's already cut the phone line before all this happened, I guess. And you can hear like the deep, heavy breathing in the house. And I'm thinking, the first time I saw the movie, I thought we were supposed to hear it. But you realize Lori can hear it because she starts freaking out and goes, oh, no. And she realizes the window was open. Yeah. And the uh, curtain's blowing in the wind or from the fan that you can see in the frame. <laughs> There's a giant, like, industrial oh, fan right there. Yes. Oh, God. There's so many, like, little <laughs> things. Like, John Carpenter's cigarette smoke comes in front of the camera so yeah. many times. And I don't remember. I was going to put it in my notes, but I don't remember if it's the night walk or one of the daytimes where they're walking, but you can see like the set and crew with like setting up working lights on a porch in one of the houses in the neighborhood while they're walking down the street somewhere. <laughs> it's pretty funny. $320,000 or whatever in 21 days. You get what you got, right? Yeah. You know, once she realized the window's open, she dives down in front of the couch where her knitting shit is and grabs a knitting needle. And Myers comes from behind the couch, which is kind of a cool jump scare scene, but somehow fucking misses her again and yep. stabs the couch cushion. She fucking stabs his ass in the neck with the, with the needle and he just fucking falls over like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> but we see Loomis walking down the street and Sheriff Brackett pulls up and he tells him that we found the car. We got to split up. We got to look for him. He's actually here. And Sheriff Brackett's a little quicker on the draw now because he's like, okay, if we found the car, there's something to this. Yeah. Because you got to think at this point, they don't know anyone's been killed. And uh, Lori runs upstairs to go get the kids and she tells them that it's safe and that she killed the boogeyman as he comes up the stairs right behind her. <laughs> she locks the kids in the room and she runs into the bedroom, 
opens the balcony and makes it look like she ran out on the balcony, which I love this part. They got revisited in 2018. Yeah. And then she goes and barricades herself in a closet, right? Misdirection. Michael figures out that she's in the closet and he punches his way in. She grabs a clothes hanger and straightens it and stabs him in the eye and he drops the knife and she picks the fucking knife up and starts fucking stabbing him in the chest and he collapses again. Pretty cool final girl move. They don't usually just directly assault the killer like that, right? Yeah. She comes out of the closet and drops the knife next to her, his body. Fucking amateur. Why would you leave <laughs> the weapon there? Even if you've never seen a horror movie, why would you leave the weapon next to the guy that just tried to kill you with yeah, the weapon? Yeah, dude, I'm going to be clutching that shit until an officer takes it from me. <laughs> They're going to have a psychiatrist interviewing me with alongside the police because I've stabbed the body 15 more times. <laughs> That's what's going to happen with me. Um, <laughs> just make sure he's dead. But she gets the kids out and she sends them to the McKenzie's house down the street to call the police. Yep. Which they referenced this in Scream. They had Casey Beckett's dad told the mom to run down to the McKenzie's house and call the police. She sits down the stairs and the shape sets up behind her fucking Nosferatu style. Right. <laughs> I fucking love that. Nick Castle must have had some good ab muscles. Good core. Oh, yeah. Because I mean, there's no hands. He doesn't. But as that's going on, Loomis is, it cuts to Loomis outside and the kids come running out of the house screaming and he knows something's fucking up. So he pulls his gun out and he runs in the house to investigate. Back in the house, Lori stands up and starts to head down the stairs because she can't hear his asthmatic ass breathing behind her. <laughs> and he comes up to choke her. She pulls his mask off and we get to see the sixth person to play Michael Myers <laughs> in this movie. And everyone that played him, Deborah Hill played the hand, right? Yep. They, they took the knife and stabbed Judith. I can't think of the boy's name, but the little boy that played little Michael, six-year-old Michael. You got Nick Castle, who's number three. Yep. Uh, Tommy Lee Wallace did the set design. So anytime there's a door that had to be punched through by Michael, since he was the guy that rigged the door, he just put the mask on and he punched through it. Yep. And uh, Tony Moran, I think is the actor's name. And it's because they wanted like a, what did he say? He's like, I wanted a guy with the face of an angel or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, When they yeah. pulled the mask off. I guess Nick Castle's too fucking ugly. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, that's only five people, though, isn't that's it? That's only five. I swear there were six. But yeah, it's five or six, yeah. for sure. It's at least five, but I could have sworn there was a sixth person somewhere in here to it's do just this. just like talking about how many times the series been rebooted. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, so he's there just for the scene where he pulls the mask off, which always bothered me because he's got like black hair and dark eyes, and that's not what Michael looked like. Anyways, <laughs> he's not a Cherokee Indian. Not a Cherokee Indian. That's going to come up later. Um, but he lets go over because he's got to get that fucking mask on. And as he gets it on, Loomis comes up the stairs and fucking unloads all six rounds into him, knocking him off the balcony. And yep. he falls. Yep. The gun's not magic in, in this ending. No. But the ending in part two, it's magic. Lori looks up and asks Loomis if it was the boogeyman. As a matter of fact, it was. He looks over the balcony and he sees that the body is gone and he does not look surprised. Interestingly enough, John Corporate always remembers the scene because he told Donald Pleasance that he was going to shoot Michael. He was going to fall off the balcony. And I want you to go and look over the balcony and look up. And then Donald Pleasance looked at John and said, I can do this two ways. I can look over the balcony and look surprised that he's gone. Or I can look over the balcony and be like, he's gone. I knew it. Which one do you want me to do? And John's like, holy fucking shit. The actor asked me what I wanted, you know? And he's like, you guess which one he did. And clearly it was that I knew it. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the I knew it face. But we get, honestly, my favorite horror movie outro of all time, uh, where you hear the theme music playing and the camera is like panning around to different sets from the movie. Like it's just a montage of all the houses in the neighborhood. Yeah. And you can hear him breathing the whole time. 
so that you know he's out there somewhere. And uh, the end. And really, they kind of did that in 2018. Yeah. Even though he's in a burning basement with rebar barricading him in. But that's not for this episode. <laughs> I like this movie. I, it's not like a go-to movie for me, but I understand what it was at the time and I can respect it. Whereas like the wife seeing a whole bunch of other shit first and then finally seeing it when I showed it to her, she's like, I'm bored. Like you got to understand where we were at the time when, when this movie came out, going back to the score. Cause they originally screened the movie with no score and nobody wanted it. And that's when Carpenter went back and actually did the, the score over a weekend. And even with that, when it got released, it got released in four theaters in Kansas city, Missouri. And that was it. And, but that's where it took off from. Which really goes to show, we've seen this in other movies, well, the one I always come back to is Legend, as there's the international cut and the American cut with completely different soundtracks. And it is amazing what a score can do to a film. And this was hastily thrown together over a weekend, and John Carpenter did such a good job making such an iconic part. And like you said, going through the movie, there's basically like three movements to the part and they're all used real good in the fucking film. Just sitting there smoking cigarettes and drinking Budweiser's. <laughs> I think he said he drank a six pack of Budweiser's like a day. To, no, no, that might've been when he wrote Halloween too. He had to get hammered the whole time to write it. <laughs> but that's just what I was talking about. Like, you know, with the wife seeing it and saying this movie is boring. If you take the score away from the movie, I can totally see people drifting off. That right. Score is so important. I don't know. His music's great in all of his movies that he did. But like every fucking horror franchise, we have this awesome original movie. And then we get the sophomore slump three years later, Halloween 2 in 1981. And as you said, even those days, you had to have a sequel. And uh, this one was nice, though, in at least starting off as a, a straight continuation from the first. Um, but this one, of course, was written by the same duo being Carpenter and Hill. And was directed by uh, Rick Rosenthal, who actually did two episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Before this came out? Yeah, different Buffy. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, when I was looking at him, I was like, hey, he did a couple episodes of Buffy. So that was kind of cool. And uh, of course, we got Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance back again. We've got Charles Cyphers as Brackett. And he played Brackett in the first one? Correct. Okay. There's a there's two sheriffs between the franchise that I fucking love. Him and Bo Star. <laughs> We've got... Uh, Lance Guest as Jimmy and the last Starfighter. Right, right. <laughs> and we've got Dick Warlock as the shape. And Dick Warlock, let's just, I giggle every time I see that name. That is such a badass name. It's the coolest <laughs> fucking name ever. Like, if I ever go into, like, uh, Witsec, because, like, I read out the Mafia or something stupid, Dick Warlock's going to be my new name. <laughs> of course, Carpenter wanted to do the fog first. And Yablin said, okay, that's fine. And presumed that he was just going to come right back and do Halloween 2 with him. And then he ended up finding out that Carpenter had set up a deal to do The Fog and Escape from New York with Embassy Pictures. Right. And like anyone, he sued. <laughs> yeah, I mean, John, when you hear him talk about making this movie, it was basically like it was made under duress. Yeah, like at gunpoint. <laughs> like he was done... He was ready to move on contractually. They had him by the balls. And I think he said he had to drink a six pack a night to fucking work on the script and, <laughs> and the score and shit. And he didn't want to do it. And that's why the, the ending of the movie is so fucking final because he wanted to make sure they couldn't call his ass again. Yep. And that's what he said. I'm going to do it, but this is going to be the last Halloween film. So it ends up being another Dino De Laurentiis production. And this time released by Universal as part of a two picture deal. 
I do want to point out, I didn't write in my notes for other movies, but Dino was involved in quite a few of these. Oh, and really? His name, I mean, he always pops up in 80s horror movies. I know, man, all over the place. But, uh, well, the, just two more quick things here, because there's going to be some other stuff with, within it. But uh, the hospital that they ended up shooting a lot of this at, it was multiple hospitals, but one of the main ones, it was so close to this airport that when they were there scouting, like planes kept coming by. And Rick Rosenthal was asking the scout and was like, is this like a normal problem? And he's like, oh, no, no, we're just here on a real heavy day. It's going right. to be fine. And when it got time to shoot, they found out, oh, no, that was a fucking light day. And it was <laughs> so bad they had to stick somebody on the roof and radio down to the production to tell them whether or not it was clear to fucking roll sound because there were so many planes flying over it. And the other cool thing is that uh, Dick Warlock was actually brought in just to be the stunt coordinator. And when he came into his first meeting with Rosenthal, he found one of the masks, put it on, walked into his office. He's like, can I play the shape? Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> you got it mostly right. He puts the mask. He walked by an office on the way to the director. Oh, yeah, he just he puts it on. stood there to freak him out. And he just stood there. And, and the director's like, who are you? What are you doing in my office? And just kept talking. And he just kept staring at him, dumb. And, uh, and that's how he got the part. You're right. But if you think about it, like stunt coordinators, the stunt coordinator is usually the slasher in movies. Yeah. I mean, just look at Kane Hodder, right? Yep. Like Jason's always a stunt guy. And Michael from this point on is always a stunt guy. And I mean, it just, it's always been that way, but this was the first, if you think about it, this is the first time the stunt guy fucking played the killer. Yep. So we open in Haddonfield with a quick recap of part one's ending and Loomis is now magic revolver who fires seven shots for some reason in the recap instead of the six that actually happened. I'm assuming that a Foley artist fucked up somewhere. I don't know, but it's always bugged me. And you know me, as we go through these, I'm going to find things that bug me and bitch about them. But, you know, you bitched about this map that we're going to have to see. Haddonfield doesn't make sense. It's a fucking black hole. So we see, of course, Michael Myers is still alive and on the loose. The now fully synth theme plays because it was it was synthesizer, but it was piano in the first one. And now it's full, you know, I don't like it, which I'm not. It's it starts going down this road and it all starts here. Now, the cool thing is, is we get a rinse and repeat of the credits with the pumpkin, but at least this time, or the jack-o'-lantern, and, but at least this time it cracks open with a skull inside. I thought that was neat. It was neat, but that's one of those things like John made the movie with the gore and the kills off screen. And in this movie, the kills get more visceral and sometimes like just to be cool, I feel like, and yep. that's how it went. And I kind of feel like that was like the edgelord skull and the jack-o'-lantern. You know what I mean? Like, that was just like first thing, like, and we're in your face now. Yeah, this is a different movie. But of course, Loomis is exclaiming, I shot him six times. He's not human. I shot him six times. We get straight to a POV shot with a knife getting picked up in some lady's house. She was making her husband a ham sandwich, presumably. And uh, we've got Michael Myers kind of uh, peeping on a girl as she comes out to yell at those neighbors. She goes back into the house and she's on the phone and we can hear the radio kind of tell us what's going on about the escaped lunatic and that these bodies are starting to be found. And she says on the phone that it's right down the street. So she goes to invest. That's when it is. She goes to investigate a noise and we get a jump scare. <laughs> They're bad in this movie. And uh, it's Mikey popping up and she gets it and we don't see anything. We just see blood. So it acts like it's going to be OK, but God, it goes downhill from there. I do like the phone conversation scene. I think it's done really well. Th that girl. 
on the phone is a better actress than most of the people in the hospital. <laughs> and, you know, and they're like, oh, we went to school with those girls. You know, it happened at blah, blah, blah. It might be, you know, what yeah. they say the address? And she's like, oh, my God, it's right down the street. And she's way more convincing than most <laughs> of the rest of people in this movie. So back on the scene from the ending, Lori gets loaded up on an ambulance to transport to the hospital by Jimmy and Bud. In her shitty, shitty wig. <laughs> that wig is so bad. And it wouldn't be the last time. <laughs> right. <laughs> And as they show up at the hospital, we see a kid get brought in with a razor blade stuck in his mouth. Apparently, Dino did not like that. But uh, we needed it because, you know, candy apples, razor blades, Halloween. Like I've heard that story my entire life. It's why my parents always had to go through my candy before I was allowed to eat it. And then my dad always had, like, the questionable pile. He's like, oh, these might have been tampered with. And he fucking ate those. So, like, <laughs> if, the, if the wrapper was slightly <laughs> altered, my dad would go, oh, we got to throw this one out, Jesse. They could have opened it. Dad's pile of candy. Neat trick. I'm going to start using it. And But, you know, the only times, at least the last time I, I did any looking into this, the only time that's actually happened where kids have been hurt by candy was by family members doing it on purpose. It's never been some random person except for the whole Coke can syringe bullshit and the Tylenol bullshit that that did happen. So we see Lori getting brought in and she's saying, don't put me to sleep. We see her getting shot up and I'm going to hang on this for a second because it looks 100% real and I hate needles <laughs> and fuck that shot. But meanwhile, we've got Loomis and Brackett and they spot Michael Myers. Only he's kind of like a Billy Idol version of Michael Myers. <laughs> not the one from four. We'll get to that later because this mask is white with blonde hair, not pink with blonde hair. <laughs> it is the same mask, though. There's, uh, there's two masks from Halloween. The hero mask and yeah. the, the stunt mask, maybe. Is that what they called it? I don't remember. And uh, Deborah Hill kept one of them in a shoebox under her bed. Cigarette, smoke damaged. <laughs> and... Uh, Nick Castle kept the other one yeah. and she asked him for his mask to shoot this movie. It's like, Oh, we'll give it back to you when we're done. He never got it back. And, uh, <laughs> if, if this is on your notes later, I'm sorry, but, uh, I know Dick Warlock kept his mask that he wore. So that was probably the hero mask. Yeah. And I'm assuming the stunt mask was the one you see burning at the end. And Nick never got his mask back. <laughs> Poor dude. I just wanted to make a joke about the pink mask that comes up in four. But uh, Oh, we will. So the presumably Michael Myers walks out into the street, gets hit by a squad car, then slams him into a van, and then all bursts into flames. So he's now a crispy critter. But is it him? Is it him or not? So another cop rolls up and says they just found three bodies, and one of them was Annie. So they head on over there, and onto that scene, Loomis makes it very clear to Hunt, that's the other cop, that it was just a man in a mask in the crash. And if Michael Myers is still alive, those kids will die. <laughs> so bad. Loomis, of course, wants to see the body. So we cut across town to uh, Darcy and Hello Nurse. That's Karen. I call her Hello Nurse. Hello Nurse. Anyways. But more importantly in this scene, because it's just a setup because they're arguing about um, giving her a ride. She's like, I got to get to work or I'm going to be late. Blah, 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 yada, yada. But it's a setup for a kid to walk by with a radio. And over the radio, we can hear the report giving away Lori's location as the kid walks right into Mikey. And that was, uh, whose son was that? I was about to say, it's somebody's son. I don't remember whose. I don't remember if it was Rosenthal's or somebody else's, but it was somebody, somebody in the production, it was their son was the kid with the radio. So there's a convenient sign right there on the corner that says hospital this way. Right, you know, right. It's Haddonfield Memorial, whatever. It's, it's so clunky. <clears throat> Like there's a lot of this that's clunky. I don't remember if it's that sign or another one, but something says Haddonfield Clinic on it and not Haddonfield Hospital. And that's supposed to be their explanation for why the the emergency room was empty is because it was like a 
after hours clinic and not the actual hospital. Well, Loomis refers to it as a clinic later on, but that, it's Haddonfield Memorial. Uh, yeah, they I tried. Mean, it, yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> I feel like that was like an after the fact. Let's because uh, that's that's always everybody's complaint. My dad, who's not a big horror movie guy, but watched these fucking every year with us. Always like, well, that's the fucking hospital empty. Like every time, <laughs> that's my dad's sticking point. Oh. But back at the hospital, we see over CCTV that Mike Myers is doing a little bit of stalking around the hospital. Apparently, he's already there. And we see Jimmy and Bud, and they're on break with Janet. And if you'll notice in this scene, the girl who plays Janet, you only see one side of her face through this whole scene. She walks out. Well, later on in the movie, she's the one who gets it in the eye. Well, they did it with the needle. The money shot? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, the needle shot. But in one of the takes, when we get to that part, when she goes to fall, she actually busts her eye open on a desk and she's like bleeding everywhere and like saying, use it, use it. And Rosenthal's like, cut, cut, get her to the emergency room. Well, they shot that before this scene. Oh, okay. So she was all stitched up, up the side of her face and shit. And that's why <laughs> like the camera's always in that one corner and they get her out of the room real quick because they couldn't shoot the other side of her face. Karen comes in just as Janet's leaving and she tells Bud that she'll see him later. And the whole thing they wanted was we need Bud to sing a song. It just seems like something his character would do. We'll make sure it's something in public domain because we don't want to spend any money. And they're like, okay, sing happy birthday. And they're like, why the fuck would he sing happy birthday? And somebody chimed in and was like, sing amazing grace. That's in public domain. And dude who played Bud, who was good friends with Rosenthal. That's how he got into the movie and shit. It's like, um, well, I want to sing it the way Bud would sing it. <laughs> He's like, okay, roll it. And that's when we get amazing grace. Come sit on my face. Don't make me cry. I need your pie. It's got the fucking roach clips, like smoking the joints. Like, <laughs> we fucking bust into that jingle. Yeah. And he's like straight up New York. He's an interesting cat. But uh, Jimmy goes off to see Lori. Before he goes, Bud tells him, you know, don't get involved with patients. Nurses are okay. Right. <laughs> Jimmy's overacting in this entire movie just fucking annoys me. All they had to do was do a throwaway line of how he like knew her in some way, but instead it's like, Oh, it could have been any one of us kids or something. You know what I mean? It's not like he specifically knew her, knew her. He just knew of her. Yeah. His immediate infatuation with her is just out of place. If he would have just been like, uh, they explained something about how he had a crush on her in school before he graduated or something. You know? Yep. That would have done it. But we see Karen getting fussed at for being late again. We also see Mikey in the background. Now he's inside. Right. Oh, and by the way, the phones are down too. So we see the security guard, which I, he was in a bunch of stuff and I don't know, whatever. I call him Lard Guard. So Lard Guard <laughs> goes to check on the phone lines at a pole. And this is dumb. I mean, he literally just, something's wrong with the phones. Let me walk outside and look up at the telephone pole. Right. It, I hate it. But um, he checks the trash. We get a stupid jump scare and it's an on the nose cat jumps out stinger fucking jump scare. I do want to point out, could you imagine if we drank a six pack of Budweiser and recorded one of these episodes or wrote part of it? It'd be pretty bad, right? It'd be bad. John Carpenter six pack of Budweiser <laughs> a night while writing the script, man. It doesn't have to make sense. Made the movie at fucking gunpoint. <laughs> so he then sees the storage room has been broken into and we get a shit falling out of the closet jump scare. But he closes the door to reveal Michael Myers right behind it, and he takes the claw end of a fucking hammer and bashes it into his head, just like Friday the 13th, which the funny thing is, is it's, it's at least hypothesized that Rosenthal was like, oh my God, this Friday the 13th fucking movie came out and like the gore and the kills, like this is what the kids want and like tried to sho shoehorn that kind of violence into the movie. 
I don't know. Four is when they did like four was there like the Friday the 13th movies have all this fucking gore and titties. We've got to do it. <laughs> we got to do it. I'm serious. It's like what happened. So meanwhile, Loomis is checking on the crispy critter back with the coroner and he appears to be too young to be Michael Myers, which would have been kind of hard to tell because Mikey would have been what? 21. Yeah. But yeah. They, they specifically say 17, 18. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, we'll have to wait on dental records. So they go back to the Myers house. Um, where the public is gathering and let's say they're a bit uneasy and two boys come up and they say their friend is missing and he was drunk and had a stupid mask on. And that's when, if you put two and two together of who it is and it's supposedly Ben Tramer. Exactly. I can never remember his fucking name. Thank you, Jesse. I have seen the first Halloween movie easily 200 times. <laughs> I've seen it four or five times. Quick uh, slice by slice behind the scenes. Josh had saw my initial notes for the episode or whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't gone. Like I had written. I don't remember how many pages of notes. I was like, I haven't watched the movie yet. I told him that on the phone. He's like, Jesus. And I was like, I just wrote it off of memory. And then I went and watched the movie and added shit. So it's a problem. I know. So back at Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, not a clinic. Um, Hello <laughs> Nurse gets buzzed by Bud. And that's an actual good jump scare because she's just standing there looking at something and all of a sudden there's, there's the buzz. That one was cool. But then we get another one when she goes to the bed because it's Bud and he grabs her and scares her. He wants to go down to hydrotherapy, but uh, she says later. So meanwhile, we've got Lori having a dream where a woman says she's not her mother. She sees a young boy in a chair looking out a window. Foreshadow. I can't remember. It might be in... One of the extra made for TV. It was, I think. John Carpenter regrets this to this day. Uh, when he had to shoot the extra scenes for the first Halloween movie, he did the word sister written in blood on okay. the wall in the asylum. It's one of the extra scenes. And he blames that being there for why he had to make them related in the second one. Okay. The first time I saw Halloween was on, like I said, they used to play it on PBS every fucking, you know, Halloween night or whatever. So the first time I remember seeing Halloween as a kid was a recording of that. So I saw the TV version first. I just assumed he wrote it because he murdered his sister, Judith. That would have been fine. I don't know why John felt like that meant that he had to make another sister. It doesn't make any sense. Because he was drunk. <laughs> yes. I don't make good decisions <laughs> when I'm drunk. So we see Hello Nurse take butt up on his offer. And there's a whole story behind this with them going into the hydrotherapy tub. So supposedly the actress had agreed to do the nude scene all the way up until the day of filming. And Rosenthal tells dude playing Bud, he's like, look, man, I need you to go in there and warm her up. She's decided she's not going to do it. So he goes in there and he goes to get in the, in the tub, whatever. It's like a hot tub thing. It's like yeah, yeah. a big kidney bean hot tub thing. Anyways. And the water was fucking cold. He's like, no, no wonder she doesn't want to do this. How the fuck am I supposed to warm her up? And he goes back to Rick and he's like, Dude, you don't even have warm fucking water in there. He's like, yeah, the generator's out. Go fix it. <laughs> and the guy telling the story, I don't know how true any of this is. He's just like, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this is the man that fought for me and got me into this movie. So I'm going to go in there and do my best. And he said he went back in there. He's like, no, I didn't have a lot of confidence because I'm in there in my Speedo and, you know, it's cold. I'm no Italian stallion. I look down. It looks like a fucking raisin. <laughs> but I got her to do the scene. <laughs> yeah, because apparently he went in like he did talk to her and he's like, look, we're just going to go in and shoot this. It's professional. But I've seen that interview with him. It's been some years. But, yeah, it's fucking hilarious. Yeah, it was great. So he might be bud in real life. Hey, maybe. <laughs> so as they're in the tub, we see Michael Myers in the background going ahead and turning the heat on, <laughs> on the system up to the setting of scalding. 
Why is that a setting? I don't know. <laughs> the fucking amps go to 11, man. It's always bothered me if that hot tub got that fucking hot. But Bud goes to check on it, and through the glass, we see Mikey grab him from behind, and then his body fall. And there's a whole thing on, on the same documentary where Dick Warlock's talking about, I was like, I'm going to pull once, I'm going to pull twice, I'm going to pull three times, and on the third time, you go limp. And like, just see <laughs> how he was real good to work with, being a stunt coordinator, playing the role and everything. And of course, Mikey comes back in, and... First, you know, he puts his hand on her shoulder, which is just fucking weird. And she thinks it's Bud. It's Pervy Mike. So, oh yeah, we we established Pervy Mike. And she starts licking on his fingers and shit, just being a complete tease. So he drowns her in the scalding hot water and, you know, throws her on the floor, face peeling off and shit. So he cut back to Loomis and crew investigating a break-in they heard about at the school. And this is starting in this movie. We'll skip three, but starting in this movie... There's just bad back and forth jump cuts from scene to scene, just trying to keep the story moving. So like we've dealt with before, I didn't do these separate to try to tie them together. There's just going to be a lot of bouncing. I really wish I could remember the director of photography's name, but he wasn't on this one. (laughs) Dean, it's in my notes. I think I know who you're talking about. So at the school, they find a kid's drawing of a family with a big ass kitchen knife stabbed into the drawing into the sister. And there's some gibberish scrawled onto the wall as well. And I guess it was gibberish um, to everyone on the set because no one knew how the fuck to pronounce Samhain. This pisses me off. It's a sticking point. It's not Sam Hain. It's never been Sam Hain. It's Samhain. Moving on. <laughs> Loomis so says, is this not the same Sam Hain then that uh, Glenn Danzig used for a band name? No. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. Thank you for pointing that out though. But Loomis says it means the Lord of the Dead. Wrong again. It means the Lord of Darkness. Moving on. It also means the end of summer. It was the Feast of Sam Hain. Sorry, it's in my notes that way, so now I'm saying it. It was the Feast of Samhain, and it was the Druid New Year's celebration. Moving on from that. But it just, it annoys me that how could there be that many people on fucking set and be like, I'm bad at words. We've talked about this, but. It might have just been how Donald Pleasant said it. They, 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 they couldn't really we, argue with Donald Pleasant. We don't have money to film this a second time. We're moving on. <laughs> And it worked. And honestly, I didn't know for years until I was reading something. I was like, oh, what's that word? It's supposed to be Sam Hain. And it's because, you know, I saw Sam Hain in the movie. You hear Sam Hain mentioned in all sorts of horror things all the time. You got fucking Glenn Danzig with the band Sam Hain. (laughs) And I just kind of always put two and two together. And I didn't know until I was older. Yeah, I I didn't know until my late fucking 20s. I'm not some scholar or anything. But it did. Knowing it pissed me off. So it makes (laughs) me wonder how many people got pissed off that way but uh so marion ends up coming in and tells loomis that he's been ordered to go home by dr rogers and that a marshal is waiting for him to go outside he's like i i'm not gonna do it just because he told me and she's like well how about the governor yeah fuck i'm gonna take my toys and go home she so she's in three halloween movies always uh i always forget until she shows up that she's in this movie for just like the briefest of moments so back at the hospital we get jimmy telling Lori that he won't let anything happen to her but she's 100% unresponsive. And I left this out earlier. The first time he goes in there, he's like, you want to, she's awake. And it's like, you want to coke? I'm going to go down the hall and get you one. But then they get the call that there's more bodies and right. he's got to bail. So there's been some setup between the two. So he calls for a nurse. He wants to tell her about his sick fucking arcade high school <laughs> that he got back at the trailer park. <laughs> oh, so Janet goes looking for Dr. Mixter and she finds him with a fucking needle stabbed in his eye spins him around in the chair. And I, I guess that killed him. <laughs> and we've got Mikey appears behind her in the shadows, draws back air into the fucking syringe, jams it through her temple and pumps an air pocket into her brain. So she falls over dead. 
That's a very like scientific medical kill for a slasher. And I, <laughs> and this is the point where we've lost all of everything that made Michael Myers, Michael Myers at this point. Like this kill is where it's like, we've we're we're a throwaway slasher at this point. Right. So he makes his way into Lori's room and he stabs the shit out of the bed, but it's just blankets. We see that Lori's stumbling around because she's like half catatonic at this point now. I don't know why. And well, they did sedate her earlier. True. And she's got PTSD. Okay. Or shock something. Okay. I'll mixture of the two. I'll give her a mixture of the two. She might have been sued to be here too. Who knows? <laughs> so she makes it to a phone and starts dialing on it. I don't know why there's no dial tone. Because remember, phones are out. Security guard even looked at the power lines. They I have know. to be out. <laughs> Actually, I think she's just too out of it to dial. But um, while this is going on, we see Jimmy telling Nurse Jill, go to her car, go to the sheriff's station. Is um, it Sheriff McKenzie down the street? <laughs> if he says a name, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. I'm just joking. But uh, Michael Myers is watching this go on. He's standing there behind a curtain. So Jimmy's wandering around, and he goes into this room that the whole floor is just a giant puddle of blood. Well, it's Mrs. Alves. Alves? How do you pronounce her last name? I don't know most of the characters in <laughs> Halloween 2's name because along with 8, I'm not a fan of it. Well, this is the nurse that was getting on to Hello Nurse for being late. Right, right. And there's an earlier scene in the movie where you just see blood dripping out of a hose. And it's like, why is that there? Well, when Jimmy one runs into here, you see that she's strapped to a table and has an IV put in her that's just pumping all of her blood out into the floor. There is such an absurd amount of blood on the floor. That was after they redid it. It doesn't make any sense. It was more at first. I know. I know. I remember <laughs> I, I purposely didn't watch documentaries for the movies that you were covering, but yeah. I've seen all of them, <laughs> right? Like over the years and uh, just trying to imagine that there was more blood than the already absurd amount of blood on the floor. Fucking blows my mind. There's not that much blood in five human bodies, let alone one. I know, right? Now, you want to talk about the blood being too red. This blood is too red. <laughs> she looks like paint. But it gives us a reason for Jimmy to slip and bust his ass and be out of commission. So we cut back to seeing what Jill's doing. She goes to the car, but it won't crank. She gets out and notice the tires are slashed. She looks around at the other cars. At least she's smart enough to do that. Right. But all those tires are slashed as well. So she goes back in and she finds Lori. And then Michael finds her. <laughs> in the spine with a scalpel fucking stabs her in the spine picks her up and he's holding her there in the air and her fucking shoes fall off now that best kill in the movie that is the best kill in the movie and that one's perfectly fine for his character i wish he had a kitchen knife though i hate like that the scalpel is his primary weapon yeah because uh dick warlock got to keep the mask the jumpsuit and the scalpel okay yeah so he wanted to keep them and um i don't know i'm real big on like killers having their iconic weapons you know and it's just like uh give him a kitchen knife so Lori takes off and uh, she finds the security guard's body strung up in, in a boiler room, but she ends up escaping via an elevator and she goes outside and hides in a car. So meanwhile, we cut back to what's going on with Loomis, uh, Marion and the marshal and the marshal's driving him out of town. And Loomis starts going on with a further explanation about Samhain, about how the Druids would sacrifice people in baskets. This is the whole wicker man thing. Um, he doesn't say that, but I'm just saying this. Right. Um, and they would do it as part of their ceremony to see the future. And she interrupts him to say that there was a hidden file. And that file revealed that, dun, 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 Lori Strode is Michael Myers' sister. <laughs> exactly. And he's like, well, where is she? And 
she goes ahead and tells him where he's at. And uh, <laughs> Loomis convinces the marshal to go back. Turn this car around now. What does you fellas usually do? Fire a warning shot, right? So we cut back to what's going on uh, with Lori hiding in the car and Jimmy gets in and he's trying to get the car cranked so they can drive away, but he's feeling a little concussed and he blacks out headfirst into the horn. Meanwhile, Loomis and crew pull up and Lori comes crawling out of the car and tries to yell at him, but she can only scream once they go inside the door. And it's, I don't understand that because she's like trying to scream, trying to scream. And as soon as the door shuts behind them entering the hospital, she can yell. Bad movie making. Anyway, I mean, honestly, I'll save it for the end. Like, it's just like just going from one to the other. Yeah. So Mikey pops up, presumably alerted by the car horn from Jimmy's head and starts chasing Lori. She makes it inside. They, they lock the door behind her and Mikey just walks right through the plate glass with no resistance or anything. It's another dumb shot. The power of Sam Hain. <laughs> Damn, that's what it is. Like you thought Salwin was bad. Sam Hain. <laughs> Sam Hain is the darkness. And just think like this bullshit drunk on Budweiser script writing somehow stemmed into all the Celtic Druid shit. I know. After right? the fact, right? This is like retcon and Star Wars stuff. Oh, this is why we said this. <laughs> so Loomis pulls his special move and pumps Mikey full of lead again. And he collapses. And he's dead. No, he's not. Look at him. He's still breathing. They send Marion out to the marshal's car to radio for help. Marshall decides to get too close to Michael Myers because he thinks he stopped breathing and gets his fucking throat slit. Loomis and Lori take off. And of course, Mikey gives chase and they end up stuck in this room and <laughs> Mikey comes in and stabs Loomis and then he heads for Lori. Lori, who is now armed with Loomis's backup gun, fires two wild shots directly into Michael's two eyes. I know. Terrible. And it doesn't kill him, drop him, nothing. No, but now he can't see. And he goes all Ray Charles with the fucking knife. Right. Swinging back and forth. And I would have said Stevie Wonder, but if you've seen that clip of that microphone falling, Stevie Wonder is not blind. <laughs> or he's got the daredevil's powers. Or that. Anyways. Well, but him swinging around the knife is just, it's bad. But while this is going on, Loomis gets up and opens the valve on one of the conveniently located canisters of ether. <laughs> some reason I thought it was oxygen. I never read the fucking it, canister. It's both. Oh, okay. And, and ether is first. I'm like, why the fuck is that there? But there was a time and maybe even still that it's used as an anesthetic. So I'll let it slide. But, uh, Lori joins in and they start filling the room with oxygen and ether. Loomis tells Lori to run, pulls out a lighter. Well, why does he have a lighter? Well, in the one scene where they run into the kids that are talking about their friend, hunt goes to light a cigarette and gives one, uh, to Loomis. And Loomis never lights it, but he still has the lighter right. that Hunt gave him. So at least we had that set up. He pulls out the lighter and says, It's time, Michael. We see this huge explosion that knocks Lori down the hall. The explosion was way bigger than right. anyone intended. And supposedly they did not use a stunt woman for that shot. And that literally knocked Jamie Lee Curtis yes. down. It was Jamie Lee Curtis getting knocked the fuck out by a shockwave. And... Of course, Michael Myers comes walking through the fire, which was out of control and burned for too long. And they nearly didn't get put out, not just on back, not just the set that was on fire, but uh, Dick Warlock burned so long that the zippers on the old style shoot burned his arms. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, 
I'm, <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a firewalk guy, but anyways, it was, it was some, uh, poltergeist three <laughs> fucking fire scene. Stunt guys fucking blow my mind though. Like the fact that they're willing to get set on fire for our fucking entertainment. And the fact that he was on fire too long. And he's like, you know what? I'm still going to walk fucking creepy. Yeah, Why man, not? I can understand the rush and the adrenaline and everything, but I think I'd be a heavy drug user before I'd say, set me on fire. What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> so after he walks through the fire, fucking collapses and burns. We cut to the morning and we see Lori getting loaded into an ambulance and driven off into the fog. We see her face inside the ambulance and then a quick cut back to the burning mask. Mr. Sandman credits. Now there was an alternate ending shot. And it was going to hold on her longer in the ambulance. And all of a sudden, the corpse in the ambulance next to her sit up, covered in a sheet, and then the sheet pulled down to reveal Jimmy. Now, Rosenthal said that that's the version he thought he was going to see at the premiere and didn't. We just had the burning mask thing. So that's kind of a little whatever. I think if he I think the the jump scare at the end would have been dumb. But there's a lot in this movie that's dumb. It's not. When you look at it in this is total Josh here, when you look at the the body of work of the franchise, there's a lot of mistakes made here. But as far as just a sequel goes, let's take the rest of it away and just go one and two. It was a better continuation of the story than some sequels try to pull off. But that's about all I can give it. The kills totally ruined the character of Michael Myers. I mean, we say that Halloween was the first slasher movie. And I feel like Halloween 2 was the first shitty, cheesy, make money sequel. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I hate to say that. For years, I didn't even, I mean, like younger years, no internet and shit. I didn't even realize John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wrote the fucking thing. Okay. I just thought it was a shitty sequel that they had nothing to do with. And it's because you always had to hear like the, from the grapevine rumors or what you could find in an old issue of Fangoria or something. But like, I just thought they cut their ties at the first one and the fact that it was written by John and Deborah, like just fucking pisses me off more, but it was made at gunpoint. Like we said, yep. and John and Deborah, when they got forced to make it, there was ways they could have got out of it. And they were like, it's going to get made without them. And yeah. they're like, we might as well do it. Then you should have done it harder. You should have done it better. And, um, they thought they were doing a good job. Like they were like, we're going to end the franchise here. We'll fucking make sure Michael Myers is dead in a way. He can't come back. You know, he's, he got shot in the eye, so he can't see anymore. He's fucking blind. <laughs> we blew him up. We burned him. you know, this and that we killed Dr. Loomis. There's yep. no hero anymore. They thought they fucking ended it. Little did they know they did not. <laughs> By the way, the mask burning there at the end, you were talking about that was probably poor Nick Castle's mask that he kept. <laughs> that was probably the stunt mask burning. But, you know, they made another one. After this one, chronologically, that we're not going to get into yet. But the order we're recording these in, it's going to be interesting <laughs> to go into them. But just where the departures come and, like, where you still have existing members, the original crew, when they leave. And I don't know. It was just a fucking mess. Like, <laughs> they should have stopped at one. I say that all the time. <laughs> Some of the sequels are okay in a vacuum. But I don't yeah. know. but that's it for the first part of the Halloween franchise. And it's after the second film that we really start to see the timeline split. Yeah. So you'll have to tune in for the next episode where we cover the Curse of the Thorn timeline of the Halloween franchise. Michael's work isn't done in Haddonfield. And soon, very soon, he'll come home. <laughs> <laughs>
But guys, keep downloading. Keep spreading the word to your friends. Keep bringing more people to us. Try to rate and review us if you can. Try to follow us at SBIS Podcast at Twitter and Instagram because I keep trying to get us in a horror fest and we actually meet download requirements for, for some of these things. But apparently they purely go off Instagram or Twitter followers. So try to spread the word on that and, and join us there if you hadn't and we'll start trying to utilize that more. If you have any comments about the format of the show, something you'd like to see us cover, any ideas, just send us an email to sbspodcast at gmail.com. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. The boogeyman is coming.